Hello and welcome to the latest Guernsey Green Finance podcast. Guernsey is a jurisdiction leading the way in the development of green sustainable finance. And as part of that, uh, this we have this podcast series where we're speaking to and learning from, from some of the leading figures in this field globally. My name is Dr. Andy Slayton. I'm Deputy Chief Executive Strategy at Guernsey Finance, the promotional body for Guernsey's finance sector, and Chairman of our industry steering group, Guernsey Green Finance. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking to Gareth Phillips from the African Development Bank on the Ivory Coast. Good afternoon to you, Gareth. How are you? Good afternoon, Andy. I'm very well, thank you, and I'm delighted to be here. And I'm really delighted you're joining us today. We had uh, kicked off this podcast series with uh, Daniel Wild from Director of ESG Strategy at Credit Suisse. And the last podcast we had was our very own Justin Sykes here from Innovest Advisory here in Guernsey, where we were indeed talking about the routing of capital to the social development goals, uh, particularly in Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. So it's particularly apposite that you're joining us today. If I may, uh, Gareth, just um, to help our listeners listeners uh, for a starter for 10 as it were just to take a step back for us and could you just explain the work of the African Development Bank for our listeners? Indeed uh, so the African Development Bank is the premium uh, development finance institute on the continent and our primary objective is to fight poverty uh, and um, closely aligned to that uh, of course, our, our broader development objectives, uh, our president, uh, Dr. Adesina, who's just been re-elected for another five-year term, uh, when he came, he introduced uh, five, uh, our high five uh, development agenda, which is light up and power Africa, feed Africa, integrate Africa, industrialize Africa, and improve the quality of life for African people. Uh, and so our, all of our development objectives now are closely aligned with the high five. Uh, and we also have a broader goal of transitioning the continent to green and inclusive growth. And climate change is now featuring across all of those activities because it's what we call a cross-cutting issue uh, alongside gender. But I have to say that climate change is rapidly becoming probably the most important cross-cutting issue that uh, we are facing. Maybe I can just add that... um, Uh, If I'll just add uh, that I manage uh, a division um, that focuses on mobilizing climate finance, uh, and I have a team of staff and consultants who work closely with the Green Climate Fund, the Climate Investment Fund, and the Global Environment Facility. And we also manage our own internal trust fund called the Africa Climate Change Fund. And our job is to mobilize as much money as we can from those different sources in order to help fight climate change on the continent. Indeed. And, and Gareth, I, I sort of uh, jumped in there, but it, uh, listeners should be aware that it's taken us a, a couple of times to, um, to, to, to do a good recording of this podcast. So uh, if I'm a bit premature with jumping in with the next question, I do, I do apologise. But it's, it's, it's easy for us in the West to, um, uh, to, to, you know, for, to forget that, that, that sort of broad sustainability agenda when we're sort of used to the uh, you know, uh, SDG 13 of climate action, that they're very much the the other 16 development goals pretty much aligned with sort of your, your core rationale of fighting poverty and, and, make, and just making life better for people in Africa. Um, in the West here, we're pretty used to uh, climate change or mitigating climate change uh, or the financing thereof. In your, you know, your part of the world, it's uh, a slightly different agenda, isn't it? And if you, if you may maybe explain to people, to our listeners, what I'm talking about there. I think uh, hopefully the, the, the hint was subtle enough. 
Yes, indeed. Um, thank you very much. I mean, I think the, uh, the globally, there's uh, quite a lot of money now going into climate finance. I was just looking earlier on today, and I happened to, to recall that there's about $579 billion worth of finance was reported uh, in 2017-18 uh, as being directed towards uh, mitigation and adaptation finance. But despite, uh, and that's globally, so that's including investments into North America, Europe, and, uh, and China, uh, and so on. So unfortunately, a very small percentage of that comes to Africa, only about $30 billion, or uh, about 4% of that comes to Africa, and only about a quarter of that goes into adaptation. So the rest of the money, the, 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 the lion's share of those funds go into mitigation. Uh, mitigation is much easier to invest into because typically it's renewable energy. And when you invest into a renewable energy plant, you have revenues from the sale of electricity. So it's a very simple, uh, relatively simple uh, investment to make. It's a, it's a clear business model with returns. The problem that we face with adaptation is that typically adaptation deals with public goods or uh, the protection of uh, common property rights, for example. Uh, and it's very difficult for the private sector to make money out of these kinds of activities. And people tend to think that projects that deliver common goods should be funded by the, the public sector, not by the private sector. So, of course, uh, you can't then, uh, you know, you get grants and so on from, uh, from donors and from some of the funds that I mentioned. But it's very difficult to leverage those up with private sector investment. Uh, and so the amounts of money going into adaptation remain relatively small. Now, uh, mitigation, of course, is important. Uh, and uh, when you look at uh, the constituencies of uh, some of our um, other multilateral development banks, like the Asian Development Bank or the Inter-American Development Bank, uh, and indeed the European uh, Reconstruction Development Bank, EBRD, their, their constituencies have a very large amount of greenhouse gas emissions. And so for them, mitigation uh, may well be their primary objective. But in Africa, Actually, we have relatively small amounts of greenhouse gas emissions. Historically, Africa is responsible for about 3% of total greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and the emissions that we emit on a, on a daily basis, actually the majority of them come from land use change and uh, uh, forestry activities, although energy and transport are growing. Uh, but the real challenge that we face in Africa is to deal with adaptation because, for example, we have 600 million farmers who rely on rain-fed agriculture. And that means that they are just one drought away from famine uh, and falling back into poverty. Uh, now, in, uh, in, in the West or in the developed world, uh, there are a lot of insurance instruments around. And, and I'm sure everybody listening to this call probably has insurance on their house for floods. Uh, and, uh, you know, you drive on roads that are constructed to, by and large, cope with floods. Uh, and so on. So, you know, you live in a, in a world that is well adapted uh, and you have financial mechanisms that protect you from the worst impacts of climate change. We don't have those benefits in Africa. Uh, there are very few insurance instruments that are available. Um, there are the, the infrastructure that is built is generally not designed to withstand the kinds of impacts that we are now seeing from climate change. So, you know, every week we read about floods and droughts and, uh, and so on. And, uh, and I know since we last spoke, the fires in, uh, uh, in North America have become substantially worse. And, you know, my heart goes out to people losing their property there, but most of them will have insurance. Most of them have cars that they can get into and drive away from the fire. Most of them have relatives or funds to go and stay in a hotel so that they can cope with the disaster and then they can come back and build their lives. In Africa, 
uh, African communities and households generally don't have those kinds of resources. And when they lose their crops, when they lose their cattle, they lose everything. So they get put right back into poverty. Let me stop there. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm, I could have, you could have carried on and carried on. I think the, for me, the real, the real underlining uh, issue there is the completely different perspective and priorities that you're facing in Africa from what I'd call the, the, you know, the, the circus uh, of climate change in the Western world. Um, you know, we discussed this before, but the IPCC assessment around six, I know I've had conversations with other expert reviewers about getting people to understand the, the differences between adaptation and mitigation and the fact that you've painted you know, the, the scale that of, of where the capital needs to go in, in Africa uh, and, the, you know, and, the, and the, sort of the billions as opposed to tens of billions or hundreds of billions that's, that's managing to find its way now. Um, you talked about, you know, uh, there being, um, you know, uh, uh, just 30 billion finding its way or 4% of, of global capital finding its way into, into Africa. Uh, that's of a, you know, a 580 billion figure you talked about. Um, um, so I shouldn't wait on, but that 580 billion is is probably a third of what's required globally. If I remember my you know, uh, uh, UN SDG targets or IPCC numbers, what's the sort of scale of capital flows and commitments that Africa needs and has possibly been promised previously under, um, let's face it, COP21? It's very difficult to, I think, to put a figure on, uh, on, on what's actually needed because we don't yet have a, you know, a clear assessment of what's needed. Uh, there's the UNEP GAAP report that talks to um, the need for $100 billion of finance a year by 2050. Uh, and uh, I read another report recently that was saying we need $2 trillion of investment between now and 2030 into agriculture and energy. So, I, I mean, for me, these numbers are, I mean, they're, they're so huge, they become almost meaningless. And um, the fact is, we are a long, long, long way short of what is required. And I suspect that, um, you know, there'll, there'll always be a need for, uh, for more finance uh, to do more. And so um, one of the areas that, uh, that we're working on is to try to find ways to encourage the private sector to invest more into adaptation. And I should just stress that, um, you know, that this finance, uh, we don't expect it to come from public sources. I mean, we realize that developed country governments don't have this level of finance. And we realize that we need to get the private sector involved. And, uh, and when we talk about the private sector, we need to distinguish between African private sector. We have a vibrant micro, small and medium enterprise culture here in Africa. Um, where there are lots and lots of entrepreneurs who are out there trying to make a living and, and make things work. And, and they're very reactive to, um, uh, you know, to opportunities that they see. Uh, and then we also have the private sector represented by the institutional investors and, and those that you deal with in Guernsey, the pension funds, the insurance funds, the sovereign wealth funds, and so on. Uh, and we need all of them to come together to bring their various resources so we need finance, we need capacity, we need technology, we need entrepreneurship to come and work to overcome the barriers. And uh, at the African Development Bank, we are working to develop an instrument that we think can help bring these together. It's called the Adaptation Benefits Mechanism. And what we're trying to do is to find a way to pay project developers, so here I mean African project developers, to pay them for the delivery of certified adaptation benefits. Now, we don't really mind what the adaptation benefits are, as long as they are genuine adaptation benefits and the host country gets to say, you know, what they consider to be necessary adaptation benefits. So these could be things like providing a potable water supply, 
uh, converting households to climate-resilient agriculture or planting mangroves along a threatened coastline. For example, those are different activities that all deal uh, and deliver adaptation benefits. Now, we want to find a way to pay project de developers for delivering those kinds of adaptation benefits. And we think that the developed world and consumers should be the ones who then provide the finance to pay for those adaptation benefits. And when uh, a project developer has the, uh, has an offtake agreement for the delivery of these adaptation benefits, they can then go to a commercial bank or a development bank and borrow the funds that they need to implement the project. Uh, now, that creates a situation where large numbers of local project developers and entrepreneurs can get engaged in small-scale, context-specific adaptation activities. But there are also many large-scale adaptation activities that are required, for example, around infrastructure uh, and um, even power and energy infrastructure, but also transport infrastructure and urbanization and so on. And these are areas where the, sort of the, the, the large private sector institutional funds can come and get involved as well. So we think that we can provide an additional cash flow to project developers that makes it attractive for them to engage in adaptation activities. And that's not actually very dissimilar from what we did with the carbon markets where we paid project developers to deliver certified emission reductions or, or emission reductions that could be used in the EU emission trading scheme and so on. It was a similar model where we paid them for, on, on delivery for a co-benefit. And uh, in, in the carbon markets, the co-benefit was a ton of carbon. And in the adaptation space, it's an adaptation benefit. There are some differences, which uh, uh, I can go into if, if you ask me questions about it, but I won't otherwise. Um, but uh, we think that this adaptation benefits mechanism could be a way or could provide an instrument whereby developed country governments could channel a sustainable source of finance into adaptation in Africa and uh, in other countries as well. But of course, our focus is on Africa. Sure. And um, I will ask you about, you know, about that because I think, um, well, I think I know that we were just speaking with Justin a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about uh, these sort of, sort of the mechanisms of blended finance to draw in private capital to basically leverage up and provide, you know, extend financing um, you know, to, uh, to the African populace. Um, and when we talk about, you know, we talk about private capital finance and sustainability, it's not purely the institutions, but particularly here in Guernsey, we're looking at the family office money and, and the private wealth. Um, as Steve Lansdowne has been talking about his work with Pula, uh, which means rain in, in Botswana, you know, in, in supporting sub-Saharan African projects. So, but all of this sort of scaling up, is, does this help you meet to the, um, the convention target of mobilising 100 billion in climate finance at COP21? Or you, do you think that the, the opportunities for blending could see this scale up to be more? Or is it, you know, if we're looking over the, you know, the horizon of a decade or more? You know, we use this, this sort of blended structure a lot, and it's definitely helping us move towards the, um, uh, the goal of 100 billion. But uh, uh, I think, you know, we're, we're not there yet when you look at the, uh, you know, at the, at the, at the, the, the mobilizing the funding to the developing countries. It's, it's not that $580 billion uh, figure that I mentioned previously, because that's, uh, that's global. It's not, uh, it's not just a developing country. And so we still have more work to do. But... You know, as I say, we recognize that the public sector will provide a proportion of that finance and we need to develop mechanisms uh, and bring the private sector in. Uh, and it's this risk, uh, sort of risk management structure and blended structure that I think can help us achieve that objective. 
No, absolutely. So yes, and the, and the conversation about the equalisation of the, the, the expected, the risk-adjusted returns expected by Western investors with that available in the opportunities in, in sub-Saharan Africa is, is, is broadly the, uh, you know, uh, the holy grail of uh, what I call the global policy issue of matching uh, you know, capital supply and capital demand uh, to the benefit of the SDGs in Africa. But tell me, moving on, I mean, I, I, we can talk about blended finance and we can talk about adaptation benefits mechanisms, but I think we've probably got a, a good picture there. And also, you know, we, we've also got a, a fairly frank picture that, you know, the environs that um, you're operating in is, is vastly removed from, uh, you, know, you know, where I'm, I'm speaking to you from. Um, where I'm speaking to you from is, is, is a world that's been you know, uh, fixated and fascinated by you know, COVID all of the course of this year. And one question I neglected to sort of like, uh, to, to sort of tee you up with when we started the podcast was you know the, the big ticket issues you saw coming into 2020 you know, in this area. And if I may sort of rectify that um, uh, that mission, you know, what what are those what were those themes coming into 2020 you saw, but particularly in the context of has COVID-19 affected your work in, uh, in 2020? Yes, COVID-19 has had a huge impact. Uh, so annually, the, the bank lends um, about $10 billion a year. Uh, and uh, as COVID, uh, as, the, as the full impact of COVID became apparent, and, and it started with a collapse in the oil price, um, the bank very quickly was forced to basically cancel our lending program for 2020 and divert our funds across to uh, a COVID recovery fund, uh, sorry, a COVID uh, a rescue fund, rapid, a rapid recovery fund, uh, which is designed to provide budget support to our regional member countries. So as I say, this started off with some of the um, uh, fossil fuel economies uh, immediately asking for budget support because of the fall in the price of oil and the impact that that was having on their economy. Uh, and then uh, it has um, moved out to focus more on sort of further budget support, but for government departments and particularly for utilities that have been unable to, um, you know, recover the funds uh, and, uh, and collect uh, revenues, particularly for the sale of electricity. So we've been working to support uh, our governments and sort of keep their uh, their heads above water. Now that has led to a significant change in our program for the year. Uh, it's threatening our ability to achieve our climate finance target. We have a sort of top level target of uh, mobilizing 40% of our investments for climate finance. So we expect to have about 3.6 to $4 billion worth of climate finance in 2020. Uh, but um, most of the money, as I said, is going out in budget support, uh, and quite a bit of that is simply used for paying salaries or for sort of meeting the running costs of government departments. So it's hard to capture that and classify it as climate finance. So we may find that in 2020 we don't achieve our climate finance target, and that knocks on to the, the contribution towards the $100 billion dollars. Uh, that you mentioned previously. Um, so uh, our contribution to that may be a little bit lower uh, this year. But, um, you know, one of the, uh, if, I mean, I don't want to say one of the positive things, but, you know, one of the, the, one of the things that has come out of our work around COVID-19 is a very strong recognition of the links between disaster recovery and climate change. There's a, a huge amount of common ground. Uh, and, uh, you know, when we talk about building back better, uh, actually, there's very much in common with building back in a low carbon and climate resilient manner uh, as well. And one of the other projects that I'm working on is looking 
about uh, the creation of green banks and national climate change funds on the continent. And uh, of course, in the UK, we have very good experience with green banks, uh, having formed the UK Green Investment Bank that uh, then um, was heavily involved in financing of a lot of the offshore wind farms uh, that we ha now have in the UK. Uh, and that Green Investment Bank has been bought by Macquarie. Uh, but there are now many other green investment banks developing uh, in other particularly developed countries. And even in the United States, there's a lot developing at the state and city level. Um, so we're very interested in green investment banks, uh, which are designed or which are institutions that are designed to invest into low carbon and climate resilient investments. But actually, you could very easily just tweak their mandate very slightly and say that these should be institutions that invest more broadly in resilience. And that would include disaster resilience and, and resilience to impacts such or, or events such as COVID-19. Uh, so, you know, we think that um, uh, COVID-19 will strengthen our requests to, to build uh, institutions and financing mechanisms that are resilient to a broader range of impacts. And, and that in the long term uh, will help Africa develop further and, and at the same time help deliver on the sustainable development goals. And in a quick supplemental to that, to come back to the, the original high fives uh, you referred to earlier, has there been any particular impact on any of the, uh, any particular area of, uh, any one of the high fives that have been more uh, impacted than others? Um, I think it's too early to say what the actual figures will be for the year, but um, uh, of course the, there's the high five on improving the quality of life for African people um, that probably captures a lot of the finance uh, that will be dispersed through the recovery program because, you know, that's what it will do. It will be used to help improve the quality of life by strengthening government's ability to respond uh, and so on and keeping essential um, functions operational. So probably uh, we may see more finance captured under um, the quality of life and less going into, for example, uh, the light up and power Africa uh, and the uh, and the, the feed Africa and industrialization, um, but it's uh, I mean it's maybe a little bit too early to say uh, exactly how that will pan out. But uh, hopefully, you know, whatever happens this year, we'll be able to uh, you know get back on our feet and, and start directing our resources um, to you know to 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 our broader investment program in 2021. And I think, again, I think it can't be overstated, but to underline the point for our listeners, that the, the high five um, priority areas are very humbling for us in the West, be it light up and power Africa, feed Africa, industrialize Africa, integrate Africa, and improve the quality of life for the people of Africa. It's, it's uh, you know, it, when we use the phrase you know, over here, the you know, first world problems, it really does bring it to light, the, the actual um, issues that you're facing uh, day to day in Africa. So it's reassuring to sort of you know, to understand that, you know, improving the quality of life for people in Africa is, is, is something that is still a, um, you feel is sustainable within the, within the grasp. Um, I would like to just be cognizant of the time and I consider the fact that the listeners appreciate that actually uh, we've had a, we've had a few issues uh, of recording this podcast a couple of times, a couple of failed attempts with the, uh, uh, with infrastructure issues but i do want to talk about infrastructure and just go back uh, you know how, well not so much infrastructure but you know to, to sort of touch on the point that how did you get into this i've looked at your cv now how did you ultimately end up having this conversation with me here today from uh, sub-saharan africa and speaking to me uh with somebody with 30 years of, of background and track record in this area 
Uh, well, thanks, Andy, for the for the question. It was very nice to uh, sort of look back and, and talk about uh, uh, about your career. I um, uh, very briefly, I started in forestry. Um, I uh, I did a, a BSc in Aberdeen and the Masters in uh, in Oxford, and I uh, I started working what, with what was then uh, ODA, the Overseas Development Administration, uh, now DFID and now DFID FCO or whatever it is. Um, so uh, my first posting was uh, to Lesotho in Southern Africa. Uh, as a, and then I did my master's and did a, I had a, a posting to Sri Lanka where I was there for three and a half years, working really on sort of, you know, sustainable forest management projects, uh, uh, commercial forestry and plantations and so on in, uh, in those countries. And then I came back to the UK and I started working uh, on the uh, certification of uh, sustainable forest management with uh, a company called SGS and uh, working with the Forest Stewardship Council. Now, these days, if you look at almost any piece of packaging uh, or paper, you'll see the FSC logo. It's a little tree with a circle around it and a sort of tick at the bottom, um, showing that the, the, the fiber in that product has come from a sustainable source. I was involved in some of the early work uh, in developing that, which was fascinating. It took me all over the world. I traveled uh, to many, many countries and, uh, uh, and saw wonderful things. Uh, in the forests and so on. And then uh, in 1997, uh, uh, I was asked to work on uh, a project in Costa Rica that was looking at verifying uh, the protection of forests and therefore the, the efforts to stop the release of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and particularly carbon dioxide. And that's where I started to get involved in, in climate change. Uh, and then sort of since then, I, I moved from forestry into greenhouse gas emissions. I did a lot of work in the uh, what was a very pioneering uh, initiative in the UK called the UK Emissions Trading Scheme, um, which was a very steep learning curve. I verified the um, methane emissions from uh, UK coals. In those days, there were 14 deep mines releasing uh, dilute and concentrated methane just directly into the atmosphere with huge greenhouse gas effects. And also um, uh, HFC 23, which is a byproduct from the production of uh, one of the coolant gases, HCFC-22, uh, which is also a propellant. In those days, it was used as a propellant in, uh, in aerosol cans, again, with a huge uh, uh, environmental impact. Um, and then uh, I got into the clean development mechanism under the Kyoto Protocol, and then I joined the private sector and worked uh, developing clean energy, coal mine methane and landfill gas projects in Southeast Asia for a while before I washed up back in the UK and... Um, had a couple of years as a consultant there, and, and now I've been five years with the African Development Bank. Uh, I joined as a chief, and I'm now manager of the um, Climate and Environmental Finance Division. Uh, and uh, I have to say, it's a fascinating job. And um, uh, despite sometimes uh, uh, the downside of being in Abidjan, where we're still locked down and, and working from our homes, um, uh, you know, there's a lot of really important and tremendously motivating stuff to do here. That's, I mean, Gareth, that's amazing. I just just listening to you. The reason why, I mean, I just know a little bit about your background, obviously, having spoken before, but uh, I just wanted it to be illustrative, uh, you know, your personal story uh, as an allegory, I think, perhaps to our listeners to the, how long and committed a journey the sustainability agenda is. Um, you know, it's not just year zero when you know, COP21 popped along in 2016 or when, um, you know, we had the protests in Parliament Square in the UK last year for Extinction Rebellion. It's not a, a, a recent phenomenon. There are, you know, there are people like yourself who have been at the coalface, if you'll excuse the uh, poor um, pun or cliche, I should say, uh, for decades. Um, and particularly, I just, you know, to listen to you, you know, the, 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 your 
your resume there it's it's very humbling as is the area um that you're you know of um, your expertise in your the work that you're committed to today we in guernsey here are talking about you know trying to finance sustainability through private capital and it's been very interesting listening to you talk to us about you know how you are working to try and leverage and exploit private capital to the betterment of millions of africans and i think it if anything, I kind of come away from our discussion today with a, a humbling experience of the different perspective and priorities you face, both in the fact that the priority is you know, climate adaptation as opposed to mitigation, where returns are scarcer and more difficult uh, to develop and generate, and this, therefore the requirement of blended finance and the adaptation benefit mechanism that you're working on is even more acute. But also, you know, just appreciating the fact that you're working in an environment where 40% of the population is on less than a dollar twenty-five a day, as below the internationally recognised poverty line. And as you said, 600 million farmers are just one drought away um, uh, from famine. So it's been a very humbling experience listening to you uh, today, to talking to you today, Gareth. I really hope that we get a lot of listeners uh, to, to this one to actually really get a, a full appreciation of you know, the, the sterling work that, that you do, but also needs to be done. Um, so I'd like just to, take, to close, say thank you very much, Gareth. Uh, once again, for your time and your insights today. Um, we've got a quite a back catalogue of interviews and panel discussions on the Guernsey Green Finance podcasts. Check them out by searching for Guernsey Green Finance wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us at guernseygreenfinance.org and weareguernsey.com. And you can interact with us on Twitter at gsygreenfinance and at weareguernsey. And we'll be back soon with another edition of the Guernsey Green Finance podcast. Until then, and uh, it makes me a bit embarrassed to say so, keep it green. <laughs>